Hi, I'm Stephen Stockwell, 4ZZZ's manager. As you may have heard, on March 12, Paradigm Shift broadcast some transgender exclusionary speeches. This content runs against the values of the station and we apologise unreservedly for any harm the program may have caused. Since the broadcast, we've been speaking with members of the trans community to find out how we can repair the damage this caused. I'm still having these conversations, so I'll have another update when I know how we're going to ensure Triple Z is a safe and supportive place for trans and gender diverse people and a voice for those communities. Paradigm Shift has been part of Zed since 2009, and over that time it's done a great job of amplifying the voices of marginalised communities. While the announcer involved in the March 12 broadcast has stepped away from the station, we're hopeful the program will continue into the future. Here's today's episode. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1 FM, your local community radio station. My name is Andy and I will be here with you for the next hour. It's great to be back on the 4ZZZ airwaves. I've done many Paradigm Shift shows, but this one's quite unusual because rather than the Triple Z studio, I'm sitting in a room in central Queensland. I'm up here at Camp Binby uh, trying to stop the Adani coal mine from being built. But thanks to the wonders of technology, I am also on your airwaves um, recording it in our little improvised remote studio here so it is great to be back and we do have a great show coming up thanks so much to ian who for such a long time has put a lot of work into the paradigm shift um, and for triple z bringing different viewpoints of people trying to change the world in different ways and i really appreciate all the work he's done um Today on the show, we're going to be talking about coal mining, as I do often up here, um, and how to stop it. I've got four different people using three very different tactics uh, to try to do something about the fossil fuel issues of the coal mining industry. First off, I spoke with Susan Doyle and Tika Latif, who last week locked on to a couple of Adani's machines up here, put them out of action for the day. Um, We talked to them about why they took an action like that and what it was like. I also spoke with Warwick Jordan from the Hunter Jobs Alliance. Um, Warwick's an old greenie who is trying to get together with people from unions and the Labor Party to try to talk about how in the Newcastle and Hunter Valley region they can forge forward 
uh, a more environmentally sustainable industry that can keep jobs alive, keep that region thriving, but not kill our planet. And I also spoke with Jack McLean from Equity Generation Lawyers, who are a law firm who are using litigation to try to tackle climate change. They've got a couple of cases on the go at the moment. So many different tactics. Um, That's what it'll take, I think, to try to stop climate change. We've got a big fight ahead of us. Um, As ever, there's been reports this week in the news about the catastrophic effects of climate change. And as ever, there's been not a lot of cooperation from those at the top to try to do something about it. Well, hopefully some of the many, many Australians who are trying to do different things about it can have a bit more luck. We hear from a few of them today. Let's start off by talking with Susan and Tika, who I chatted with in a park after the day after they took direct action to stop Adani's Carmichael mine. Could you start off by introducing yourselves? Hi, my name is Tika. And I'm Susan. And you guys have come from Coffs Harbour. You've been up in central Queensland this week. Why did you come up here? We came up here to stop Adani. (laughs) Or to to be involved in an action um, to bring notice to what's happening up there and to stop work and to just say what we needed to say through an action I suppose currently where I live on Bundjalung country it's fully flooded and yeah I feel like we're just living the climate crisis right before our eyes it's it's so real it's not a concept any longer and that definitely motivated me to be here and be a part of be a part of it because we're being directly affected so uh, you mentioned that you did an action up here. What did you do? Well, we um, we walked up to um, an Adani site where they're building the rail- railroad um, and we locked on to a butt welder. I didn't know what they, they were before, but I do know now. And, um, You're well acquainted now. Yeah, we're well acquainted with that butt welder. <laughs> um, how long were you locked onto it for? It was eight hours. What was that experience like? It wasn't the best experience of my life, but surprisingly, um, after recovering from it, it it was a very positive experience. It was just very uncomfortable, and my old bones didn't really enjoy it. Um, But I've recovered already, so that's great. Yeah, in regards to actions, it was, as Susan mentioned, a pretty positive action quite treacherous journey trying to get to the welder and to the across the railway tracks and but once we were locked on yeah it was it was pretty surprisingly smooth and it felt really powerful to be there as this multi-generational duo uh, representing women and Susan really held it down she was on the floor on the concrete locked on to where the welder was being um, held up by and I alternated between being up on the roof and then I got onto the front loader and we discovered that it was pretty precious piece of equipment and yeah really incredible to see that what we were able to do which was stop a full day of operations by being there were there interactions with Adani workers yeah there were and 
you know, I think we only had one bad experience with a guy kind of mumbling some stuff about hippies under his breath. But between the security, the police and the miners, like everything was pretty pleasant. I mean, I can go into my experience with that one individual police officer. But apart from that, I felt like we had yeah. some really nice, pleasant interactions. Security were, um, well, one security officer said that it was only because of us that he had a job. And and they were bringing us water. Um, and another guy, another security guy said, yeah, he was concerned about the environment. And, um, you know, apart from a couple of things that I was upset about that weren't directed at me, um, you know, they, they were as nice as they could be, really. Um, so, Susan, you have lived a full life, we might say, um, but it hasn't involved getting arrested. Um, what's brought you to this point at, at this stage in your life? I suppose it's it's continuing concern for the future of the planet and the world and, and to see how quickly that it's happening. You know, we've had fire, floods, pandemic, and I don't think it's going to be too far away where they're just going to become common occurrences. We're going to have food shortages, famines, you know, and I just think we should be coming together to stop what, we, what we've been doing. We have to change the way that we're living. We have to change the way that we're, we're raping the earth. It's, um, I just have to do something. I can't just sit there and not make a statement about how I feel or the damage that's being done is is quite frightening. And there's something in my news feed every day that's happening. It's, it's so disturbing. So I, I just felt I had to make some sort of action. Mm. And being part of the Coffs Coast Climate Action Group too, I mean, I've had some wonderful examples. They're a great group of people and very supportive. Um, so I know I sort of basically knew what was going to happen and I felt um, very supported by the crew up here, just mental support from, from everybody. I mean, Tika could be my great-granddaughter. That's quite amazing, really, when you think about it. Yeah. <laughs> Did you two bond together over doing a faction together? Definitely. Yes. <laughs> we definitely uh, got closer, I would say. Yeah. From almost strangers. Yep. To lock on buddies. Yeah. In the news recently, there's been a lot about, I guess, women, um, women's marches uh, for justice and things like that. Um, the action the other day, you two, as well as Ziana, um, locking on to the concrete bashing plant. Is it significant, do you think, that it was three women taking this action together? Completely. I feel the timing was almost perfect, just post uh, Women's women's Week. Yeah, it was fascinating because the um, preparatory period to locking on, some of comments that we were getting from the community, which was you like really pure and innocent and, and they were genuinely concerned. But I feel like because we were women, there was this like extra element that was added of, of care and concern, which I, I know is coming from a good place, but... Um, yeah, I, I just feel really inspired by the courage and the power that um, the women around me mm. hold. And I definitely don't think I could have done what I did if they weren't there with me. Yeah. Well, I'd only just organised the March for Justice in Coffs Harbour the week before I came up here. 
So, so it was pretty powerful for me. Mm-hmm. I sort of organised that by accident, really. By default, nobody else was doing it. So this is sort of added to women marching for justice mm. for the world. I think that links can definitely be tied between like systems of oppression. I feel like that's definitely linked to um, coal. Yeah, for sure. And the yeah. climate. Yep. Yeah. Um, so you're heading off back down to um, New South Wales' very um, well-watered mid-north coast. <laughs> um, what comes next for you guys after taking this action? Well, I think the next um, next plan is um, the Nuri Forest is going to be under attack. Yeah, there'll be a blockade there and I'm hoping to help in any way that I can with what's going on. Yeah, so I spent a lot of time down on the mid-north coast, but I am actually residing on Bundjalung country and um, Deben Creek is probably the closest thing and also the group Banyaba Koalas. So, yeah, I mean, there's always there's always a fight, isn't there, to participate in. So I think the first thing is rest and uh, replenishment yes. before I get involved in anything else. But you feel good after taking the action? Yep. Yeah, definitely feel re-inspired for life. Yeah. Thanks, Apes. Thank, Thank you. you.
What a banger that is from another woman originally from the Coffs Harbour area and somebody who's stood up for justice a lot. That is Judy Small with one voice in the crowd. Um, Before that, I was speaking with Susan Doyle and Tika Latif about their experience taking direct action against the Adani coal mine up here in central Queensland. You are listening to The Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ. We're talking about different ways of trying to tackle climate change and the fossil fuel industry. And that is one very direct way by going and stopping the industry at work. But there's other people trying different things. Um, One which has been tried quite a bit is the legal avenue. Um, We have seen in recent years a number of uh, people using litigation to try to tackle climate change in different ways, either challenging coal mines in the environment court or challenging the legitimacy of Indigenous land use agreements, which we've seen, for instance, Wongan and Jagalingu people up here do. Um, But other lawyers are trying to do creative ways of trying to tackle climate change. There's one firm in particular equity generation lawyers who have run a couple of cases now um, trying to combat climate change. They're a bit of a climate specialist law firm. I spoke with Jack McLean from that firm about their cases that they've got going. Could you start off by introducing yourself? Sure. My name is Jack McLean. Um, I am a lawyer working at a firm called Equity Generation Lawyers. We're a specialist climate change law firm, um, and we are the lawyers for the applicants uh, in the matter involving uh, eight young people from around the country who are bringing the federal environment minister to the federal court uh, seeking an injunction to stop a new coal mine project that's slated for um, the northwest of New South Wales. That's the Vickery uh, coal mine near Narrabri there? Yeah, so the Vickery Extension Project is the relevant project, which is uh, yeah near, near Narrabri, near Bogabri up there in northwest New South Wales. Now, it's not the first climate change case you've run or are currently running. It. Um, there's also uh, the case of Kata O'Donnell, who's representing the essentially the investment industry of Australia uh, against the federal government, saying that the government hasn't sufficiently prepared for the risk of climate change? Yeah, exactly. So um, uh, Kata is another one of our clients. Um, Kata is an amazing young woman down in in, um, just outside of Melbourne um, who's bringing a claim also in the federal court. Um, Her claim relates to bond holdings, um, which is a fairly technical issue, but it kind of boils down to um, for anyone who kind of knows what a bond is, uh, a bond is you know, an instrument which is um, kind of created by, in this case, the Australian government um, and can be bought by by investors. Um, it's kind of a, 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 a note owing um, or a debt that, um, that the government can incur to raise money. Um, and, and Qatar is, is such a bondholder. Um, many of us if not most of us, own bonds through our superannuation funds. Um, So it's a very, very common um, thing uh, to own, even if you don't necessarily know that you own bonds. Uh, And Cutter's case, yeah, relates to um, the the climate risk that that are kind of a factor in in bond holdings. Um, And her case essentially claims that 
in creating a financial instrument and a financial product and selling that to the world, uh, the Australian government needs to disclose the material risks that relate to that product. And, and that's fairly standard. That's pretty well accepted. Um, what, what, what Qatar is seeking to do is, is um, have the federal court recognise that climate change is one of those um, material risks. Um, and as such, there are certain obligations um, on the federal government to um, disclose information about those risks. Um, and when to we're talking about climate risks, we're talking about um, the physical, the transition risks imposed by the phenomena of, um, of climate change. So obviously uh, rising temperatures resulting in increased uh, natural phenomena such as bushfires, um, floods, cyclones, um, and also a range of uh, deleterious health effects on populations um, and impacts on the economy as well. So what's unusual about these cases, I guess, is that the end result is not necessarily what the court will deliver, but this uh, hope to somehow change government policy about climate change. Or is, do you see that as, you know, this is a kind of indirect um, way of targeting this issue? Um, well, it's, it's, you're right that no one court judgment can solve um, something as big as climate change, but, um, but it's, it's not true that this is in, indirect because um, I mean, government policy or changing government policy is, is one of the ways that um, climate change can be mitigated. Uh, obviously, the, something like the federal government and, and state governments and territory governments have um, incredible power. Um, but courts also have exceptional power um, to force people and institutions and governments um, to do things or to force them not to do things if the, if the case um, might, might um, be appropriate, like in the Sharma case. Um, and so what we're seeking from the court in, in the Sharma case, for example, which is about that Vickery extension project, is for the court to exercise its power to actually stop the, the federal environment minister from approving a new coal project. Um, so it's not so much a policy change that we're looking for from the government. The action goes directly to the, the legal obligations of the people in power um, and how those legal obligations manifest in the exercise of those um, of the powers of the people, um, for example, the, uh, that are in federal cabinet. Mm. So equity generation lawyers, um, they've run a couple of these cases. Um, is this something that the firm is specifically trying to do, run cases around climate change, or is it just happenstance that you're running these? Um, well, I mean, as, as we're a private law firm and we represent clients, that's our, that's our mission, um, to represent the interests of our clients. Um, we happen to have you know, specialist knowledge and we kind of specialize in, in our expertise um, in matters in relation to climate change um, and, and, and that kind of spans from the financial and corporate kind of um, uh, impacts of, of climate change, um, the disclosure of, of climate change risks by companies and investors, um, uh, and also how climate change impacts on governments um, and on the rights of individuals. Um, so as a law firm where we're kind of in, in that business of um, of climate change law which is very much an emerging field um, and it's a field that we're very um, kind of ex excited by we quite often represent um, clients who are seeking um, justice from from a court um, in, in relation to um, for example, 
um, in, in the Sharma case, our clients are eight young people from around the country who are uh, seeking justice from the court um, against the federal environment minister because they're afraid of the impacts that burning coal will have on their future uh, and the future of all young people around um, around Australia and around the world. Um, so our mission is, is to, um, as, as a firm, is to uh, represent our clients' interests to the best of our abilities. Um, and it's really our, our clients' interests um, to, to bring these cases um, and to try to push um, push the justice system to accept this new um, this new crisis that we're all facing, which is climate change. Sometimes in the media and from politicians, we've heard these kind of cases put down as uh, lawfare or kind of some a, a kind of spurious use of the law. What's been the response, you know, from the courts, from the uh, legal world to cases like this? Well, the response of the the legal world is that climate change is is a huge emerging risk. Um, that, quite frankly, corporations and governments around the world are, um, uh, are, are struggling to get their hands around um, the, just the, the sheer scope of, of the implications of climate change, yeah, health-based implications, economic implications, um, and, and legal implications. Um, and you know, as a member of the legal profession, I, I can see firsthand how, um, how law firms are, are trying to, to get up to speed on climate change and how it's going to impact their clients. Um, and look, you know, corporate clients uh, engage in litigation every day. So there are thousands of, if not tens of thousands of, of corporate lawyers um, around the country um, litigating um, all the time. Um, it, it's, it seems funny that when um, a group of, of young people get together to, um, to litigate, um, to, to protect their interests or to protect the interests of, of young people everywhere, uh, to protect them from imminent harm, uh, to protect themselves from um, possible death, possible um, extreme financial harm in the future, um, that that is branded as, um, as something which is um, spurious or um, inappropriate. Uh, indeed, I would, I would say the justice system is is set up exactly for uh, for this purpose to to hear these kinds of disputes. Um, as far as how the the courts have received these matters, I mean, obviously, um, it, it's it's on a case by case basis. Uh, as you mentioned, we have launched um, several different pieces of litigation that relate to climate change uh, in different areas of the law. Those cases have have gone very well. So, um, I guess having said that, what's the latest on these cases, and when will we find out a result? So, um, the the Sharma and the Minister um, case, um, as I mentioned, we were in court um, about a month ago. Um, that judgment is being reserved, and, and what that means is um, the parties have made their made their legal arguments. Um, we've had our um, our days in court as it was um, and now it's up to the judge to to consider the arguments um, and and advise on a judgment in, in due course that could be weeks away that could be months away um, it, it's it's unclear to us at the moment so we'll wait uh, and see um, how, how that goes the O'Donnell 
um, Maddie you mentioned before, is is working its way through um, some preliminary uh, hearings on its way to trial through the federal court. Um, so that will play out over the course of, of this year. Again, litigation, it's it's very difficult to, to know um, how how long these things will go for. These um, kind of big complex cases can, can take years uh, and they can also um, be wrapped up fairly quickly. So we'll just have to wait and, and see what the court says. Okay, thanks very much, Jack. Uh, anything else you wanted to leave us with? And uh, just a, a comment on, on how immensely proud we are of, of, of the young people that stand up um, and bring these cases. Um, it takes an, a tremendous amount of courage to stand up as a as a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old um, and, uh, and launch a, a federal court action against the, the, the government of Australia. Um, and, you know, it, it's really a testament to, to the courage and, and knowledge of these young people and the concern that they have about their future. Um, and I think we could all do um, well and do better um, by spending a bit more time listening to those young voices um, and, and giving a bit more um, kind of time for those voices in our national dialogue. Okay. Thanks very much, Jack. Well, at least 
was Ruth Mundy there with Love in the Time of Coral Reefs. In case you missed it this week in the news, there was a new report by the Australian Academy of Science. It said pretty much the same thing that all climate science reports say, that we have pretty much no hope of meeting the Paris climate targets of keeping global warming to 1.5 degrees and that if we do manage to keep it to 2 degrees, that would still kill uh, probably 99% of the Great Barrier Reef. So it's a spectacular thing. Get up there and snorkel and check it out while you can. Even better, get involved in your local climate action movement to try to do something about it before it's too late. Um, One place which has had a very interesting role in Australia's uh, climate debate is the Hunter Valley region, of course, a famous coal mining region, um, and there still are a lot of mines in the area. It's also got the world's biggest coal port there at Newcastle. But there's been a lot of activists for a long time. The first direct action for climate in this country was done in Newcastle at that port, um, and some of those greenies originally have in recent times got together with some of the industry people, some of the trade unions and the Labor Party in Newcastle and tried to talk about how do we work together to try to create constructive solutions to the climate crisis. Um, And the result is the Hunter Jobs Alliance. I think it's a very interesting and pretty exciting development um, politically. And I spoke with Warwick Jordan about the Hunter Jobs Alliance. Could you start off by introducing yourself? Yep, um, my name's Warwick Jordan. I'm the coordinator at the Hunter Jobs Alliance in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales. So could you tell us a bit about what is the Hunter Jobs Alliance? The Hunter Jobs Alliance is an alliance of 13 unions and community environment organisations that are based in the Hunter region. Uh, the the alliance uh, came about through the recognition of some shared interests uh, across worker representatives and community environment representatives. Um, at the at the most basic level, um, you know, in the Hunter region, like a lot of other places that have had challenging discussions about uh, resource issues, um, there has been a, a pattern in the debate where it's gone a little bit sideways and has made it really difficult to be able to uh, get the community 
and, and get elected representatives and business to focus on uh, key challenges, particularly around dealing with structural economic change and ensuring job opportunities can continue to be created in the region. And so there was a recognition that we needed a, a different conversation, a better quality of conversation that didn't involve uh, different stakeholders yelling at each other about various opinions over uh, coal mining or, or other major industries. So it started from recognising that there are shared interests amongst worker and environment organisations in, in dealing with change. To get a little bit more specific, um, there was a really clear uh, need coming through some of the uh, the members of our blue collar unions, particularly the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union and the ETU, um, from workers in sectors like power generation, aluminium smelting and the like, where people could see uh, changes coming down the line to their major industries, but were not confident or convinced that there was any real prospects of um, addressing the type of changes in those industries or creating new opportunities for people. And so there was a real driver there um, to be able to go and do the hard work to make these um, make these issues tangible for people and give them a sense that it wasn't just a talk fest and that there was real opportunities. Um, and so that's part of the hard work. And then on the environment side, you know, clearly the way the public discussion has been run has made it really challenging to be able to um, deliver clean energy outcomes. You know, a lot of uh, policy levers that are needed to be able to get us to where we need to go to as far as a, a renewable, stable, uh, reliable and, and low emissions grid um, haven't been used for, for a fair amount of time because of the nature of the public discussion. And so um, there's clearly, clearly a need there to be able to get that conversation back on track and make sure we're making use of all the tools at our disposal to, um, to get our region where we need to be as far as sustainability and as far as job outcomes. I'm curious how the kind of uh, courtship went for this relationship. Was it that environmental groups approached the unions or the other way around? What was the process like? It was in some ways intentional, in some ways uh, happenstance. There was a few uh, events that came about, but um, there was a, a particular um, start around... Um, a recognition of shared interests between um, the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union and um, environmental activists involved in the Labor Environment Action Network, um, you know, were at various events and realised that they were saying quite similar things about the need to um, respond to change and, and deliver win-win outcomes. So there was one starting point there, um, but there was also uh, quite direct engagement. We had some of our uh, local environment groups, particularly Lock the Gate, who had put some substantial effort in over the last three or four years um, in recognition of some of these issues um, around regional development and diversification and structural change. And so um, they'd made efforts to identify that as a priority for the community and had been uh, engaging with people in the union movement um, about those issues as well. So it, it came from a couple of different places. Mm. So you've mentioned a couple of times this phrase structural change and it does seem that uh, that's part of the focus of Hunter Jobs Alliance in your media discussions so far. 
Can you outline for us what do you mean by structural change? Yes, so structural change refers to the fact that um, economies move from one particular state to another over time and there can be various drivers of that. Uh, the ones that we're focused on are largely around um, investment changes, uh, technology changes and, and particularly the influence that we're likely to see over time as far as um, global emissions reduction policy as well, uh, but you have external drivers. Um, they change the the demand or the functioning or the type or number of um, employees that are required in a particular industry. And what usually happens is that if that's an unmanaged process, then working people cop it in the neck. They bear the brunt of it and struggle to move from one opportunity to another. Um, whereas there's there's evidence that there's things that can be done to be able to be more intentional about how those changes can be managed so that um, in situations where um, jobs are changing or disappearing, workers are supported to, to move between different types of employment, but also um, where there's industries that are subject to changes like a changing energy grid um, for some of our heavy industry that the right policy settings or the right type of support or advocacy is in place so that they can respond and keep the show on the road as far as um, those industries, you know, aluminium smelting being an excellent example of that, um, or where you can look at what are our advantages as a region, what kind of jobs and opportunities can we attract and how do we actually go about that because it doesn't happen by itself. So. That's that's what we're referring to in relation to structural change, and the way we define it is that's that's the core challenge. And it, you know, it's probably noticeable that that's a little bit different to um, some of the ways that um, the the transition or just transition narratives are, are talked about. Um, we do have a challenge in this region in that you know those ideas around just transition or transition as um, you know, as laudable as they are and as um, useful as they are in um, some of the, the technical and, and policy details, um, there's, you know, there's a couple of challenges that have come up around that in this region. On one hand, um, we have been talking about them for a long time and not much has happened. And so there is uh, a real element of fatigue, um, including um, with stakeholders who've been quite proactive in trying to um, support those ideas like local government, for example. And on the other hand, um, the the way those uh, phrases or those ideas have been seen um, is that, you know, to be honest, they've become a bit of a... They've been seen by some quarters in the community as a proxy for um, going after closing their jobs down. And so that's not the type of conversation we need to be having here. And so what we're trying to get focus on is that um, it, it's not a matter of a, uh, you know a government or a inner city elite or an environment organization um, wanting to go after after their jobs it's all about the fact that there are decisions being made uh, in boardrooms by foreign governments that are inevitably going to impact us and in some cases already are and we can choose to not be proactive in responding to that but there's consequences to that or we can choose to uh, control what we can control and work out how as a region we respond to make sure that we support people to have good job opportunities and, and, we've, and keep that prosperity that we've had for a long time. 
Ah, yes. I thought I'd throw in a bit of classic Newcastle crust punk since we're talking about the Hunter region. That is Conation with the bloody trail of humanity. I've been talking with Warwick Jordan from the Hunter Jobs Alliance about their vision for the Hunter region and how it can leave a bit less of a bloody trail in social impacts and environmental impacts. Um, Let's go back to talking a bit about their vision for the Hunter region. So in terms of what the Hunter Jobs Alliance would be advocating for, are we talking sort of uh, government support packages or private investment into new industries? Um, like what do you hope we'll see as part of this structural change? Um, you know, people, people in this region, like many others, they have a good bullshit detector. And part of the problem that's happened in the debate is that um, people have been told that we will have, um, you know, large numbers of green jobs or what have you, but it's been really non-specific. So for us, it's all about what are the tangible steps and the tangible actions. So we're starting from looking at a couple of advocacy opportunities where we think it, it is most real and tangible. So so you know yes it is about worker supports uh, it is about um, retraining opportunities new south wales in particular is is not great at, at doing that even compared to other states and so there's a lot of practical things that can be done in terms of career support retraining opportunities fixing our tafe system so that people actually have access to to proper training um, we also know that new south wales is a fair way back in the pack on things like uh, attracting new business, just doing the mechanics right about how you ensure that businesses get what they need and are able to make a good choice to say, this is a place that we want to invest and we're not great at that either. Um, So there's those practical type of issues. Um, We also don't have the same focus on uh, procurement or or state government investment in sectors like uh, manufacturing, like train manufacturing, um, like ensuring that our renewable projects can generate job opportunities and so there's a lot of uh, practical things that can be done and our job is to point out what those are and to advocate on them in terms of the bigger the bigger picture so um, there's obviously a lot of interest um, in how we can utilize the uh, increasing growth of renewable energy as a way to generate cheap power and attract more jobs and more industry. The the whole Garno superpower idea. Um, we have a bit of a reverse challenge in this region in that, yes, there's absolutely opportunities to leverage off our industrial base, but at the same time, um, we've been losing manufacturing jobs in the Hunter Valley at a rate of not, so it's dropped about 40% in the last 10 years, where it's growing in other parts of the country, regional Queensland being a good example. And so before we start thinking about how we're going to attract new industry, and we do have some things happening here, battery factories and the like, um, that are just starting to, 
to get a bit of a roll on now, uh, but we are really focused on ensuring that we can maintain those manufacturing jobs and those heavy industry jobs. And we have some specific challenges here. Uh, and one area that we're focusing on is aluminium smelting in this region. So it's the largest manufacturing uh, employer. We have a large, fairly modern smelter that employs around 2,000 people. And the penetration of renewables into the grid, um, you know, is becoming a bit of a double-edged sword for some of those organisations, um, particularly around smelting, in that it creates a real opportunity to move to a, a decarbonised heavy industry future, but at the same time there's technical realities about um, the penetration of renewables in the grid that's making it really challenging for those organisations to um, continue to, to generate um, jobs and continue to make their products. So we're fully uh, focused on making sure that those industries are a focus. We do have some real action and, and movement on increasing renewables and making use of um, the lower prices that come from that for job creation, but we do have some really specific circumstances for big heavy industry users that aren't being adequately addressed. And so um, our role as a community and worker organisation is to um, put our hand up as a region and say these issues need to be fixed and we need to get that uh, that movement to a low carbon pathway for heavy industry right otherwise we risk all kinds of downsides in relation to job opportunities in relation to people being less supportive of renewables if if we lose those jobs um, but also a lot of upside as far as being able to demonstrate that you can run heavy industry and employ thousands of people utilizing renewables and and that's a really positive thing for the region so um, we're quite focused on that as a challenge and um, we working with key stakeholders and advocating with government to make that happen. In a lot of ways, the, the conflict between um, industry and environmentalists that Hunter Jobs Alliance is responding to is something that's happening the whole country over. And But the Hunter region is a bit of a flashpoint in this. I mean, we see within the Labor Party, Joel Fitzgibbon, the um, member for Hunter there, one of the probably most prominent supporter in the Labor Party of coal, which has been a, a point of conflict for the Labor Party. And the, that whole identity of Newcastle as this sort of industrial mining town. But also the Hunter has seen things like the steelworks closing, like you're saying manufacturing disappearing, that sort of makes the reality of this a bit more recognisable for people, even people who are tied to these sort of heavy industries. Do you think that uh, what happens in the Hunter will be something that the rest of the country is watching? I think that's, that's a really good point. And one of the reasons why uh, we're hoping we can get a handle uh, on this issue, obviously the Hunter region has become a flashpoint, which is about what people do for a living. It's about how they put money on the table. Um, it's about some of those really big issues around how we deal with emissions and environmental outcomes. You know, it's a flashpoint because the issues are real and hard and it's not like there is one single view um, here, you know, the Hunter Valley is a place with 600,000 people in a diverse economy. Um, lots of people who are really dependent on, on mining and energy jobs and lots of people who, who aren't. And I think that's one of the things that we've been acutely aware of is that we need to recognise that diversity in the community. Our approach is very much that, you know, yes, we have different views and in some ways quite polarised views about um, these industries, but 
um, we need to think about it as an economic problem that we're all in together that we need to be able to to manage the approach that we see where you know we have politicians coming down from queensland and you know, wherever and trying to weaponize um, these type of issues and pit local people against each other um, that doesn't do anything for us as far as being able to respond to big issues we need to focus on um, what brings us together rather than um, you know allowing ourselves to be used to some extent um, by by other actors who, who think that that's um, going to have some kind of political payoff for and we've seen what happens when that spills over into uh, broader politics or what have you it distracts us from from the key issues of keeping people in work keeping opportunity and, and managing some of these environmental issues that we know are important Okay, so looking forward for the Hunter Jobs Alliance, you know, what's, what is the plan and what would you see as a good result for this organisation? For us, you know, we have a really long-run vision. This is going to take sustained effort. Um, at the end of the day, you know, what we want is a community here where we can have the type of diverse job opportunities that are going to be durable over the long term. You know, we don't want to end up with a, a hollowed out economy that you know, has people at the top end making big bucks who've been to uni and, and people at the bottom end um, making bugger all and, and losing those opportunities um, there for people um, you know, in some of those um, blue collar or heavy industry sectors. So we've got to keep that. It's really important from a social cohesion um, point of view. And we feel like it's achievable here. We've got a lot of advantages, um, like a lot of other regions do, but we've got a lot of advantages. Um, we've got a skilled workforce. We've got a lot of good infrastructure. Um, you know, we've got a lot of experience in managing change as well. And for us, it's about grabbing them and saying we're going to be proactive and, and we want to put our hand up as a region and, and say to government, don't ignore us because you look at it and see a shit fight. Come here and see a community that is willing to put its shoulder to the wheel and get working on, on how we keep the place as a you know, great place to raise a family, a great place to work and a, and a great environment to live in. But that's our aspiration. Um, and we're just starting our work, but we have been very encouraged by the by the response in the short time that we've been around and, and there's appetite, I think, for a, a better way of doing it. And so it's up to us to, to take those steps and um, look to achieve some, some concrete outcomes, um, particularly in terms of supporting heavy industry with renewables and, and particularly in terms of getting some of those um, policies and actions in place that we know can support people and, and can grow new jobs. Okay, thanks very much, Warwick. Um, if people want to find out more about Hunter Jobs Alliance, how can they do so? Yeah, so people can check us out um, at hunterjobsalliance.org.au. Um, it's got a rundown on, on how we do what we do and uh, um, a new report uh, called No Regrets, which is about um, how we do this um, in our region. So I think that might be interesting to people. Okay, thanks very much, Warwick. Thanks, mate. That was Warwick Jordan there from the Hunter Jobs Alliance. I tell you what, I like what they're doing there, trying to uh, change the conversation about transitioning out of carbon, trying to include some of these heavy industries and unions in that conversation. Um, and I think that is super important. 
Warwick, of course, he might not have give, let this on in the interview, but he's an old Forest blockader too who's taken his fair share of direct action for our environment and now is thinking about how else to do it in the context that he's in there in Newcastle. Of course, we've also on the show today heard from Jack McLean, a lawyer who's doing what he can, and Susan Antica at the top who are uh, blockading Adani Mine. There's lots of different ways for us to try to combat climate change. It is, of course, the great existential crisis of our times. Um, it's been a packed show talking about these different people, and I hope it has made you think about um, what skills you have, what opportunities you have to try to be part of a movement because it's going to take a lot of us doing all that we can if we're going to do something to combat the catastrophic threat of climate change. Well, that's about it for the paradigm shift for this week. I'm going to leave you with Billy Bragg, somebody who, uh, like the Hunter Jobs Alliance, is trying to bridge the solidarity of the union movement with the need to do the right thing for our climate. This is King Tide and the Sunny Day Flood. See you next week. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could save the world and all Simply by collecting up tin cans and empty bottles We all want to believe it's true But it don't matter what you do so long as we continue to burn our way through fossils Now it should come as no surprise To learn about the ocean's rise Polar caps are melting with every year that the planet warms Now people have to understand We're gonna feel it far inland It's gonna shift the seasons Supercharge the storms King tide is a coming King tide is a coming King tide is a coming Bringing flooding on a sunny day King tide is a coming Can't you hear the meltwaters running King tide is a coming Gonna sweep everything away And you know